Welcome to Hot Breath Comedy Fam. On Monday, May 13th, I am teaching a clean comedy workshop. The last four I have taught sold out very quickly, so if you wanna learn about clean comedy, the business side, where the line is, how to write clean comedy, go to the link in the description of this episode, and we'll see you there. Jerry Seinfeld is a deeply ex existential comedian. Like, he's not writing about nothing, as in like, no things. He is writing about nothing. He's writing about nothingness. He's writing about the meaninglessness of what we put meaning into. Hmm. And he is underlining it. He goes like, these words that we decide matter, look how meaningless their meaning is. They are so flexible to a point that it is nothingness. Like, all of his jokes are about the things we decide to put value in that actually have no real value. Hot breath. Happy day, Hot breath Averse. Welcome back to the Hot Breath Podcast, the show where you learn comedy from the pros. I am comedian Joel Byers, and you know what time it is. Hot breath. <sighs> Welcome back, hot brethren and sistren. If this is your first time tuning in, you have come to the right place. Because today's guest, a lot of you were calling this DC and Marvel coming together. My guest and I, our shows share the same mission of spreading, and his words calls it comedy literacy. And I could not agree more. We have shared several of the same guests, so it was only right that we now share the same interview. We've been doing these live Q&As in our Facebook group, so if you're not a member yet and you want to get involved, we've been doing Q&As with comics like Nate Bargatze, Alonzo Bowden, uh, Ron Funches, so many different comedians have come through to answer your questions directly. So go into the show notes, join the Facebook group, and let's get in to today's Q&A with the host of Good One Podcast, the tastemaker of comedy is what I call him. And my favorite part about this interview is it started out being about a 30 to 45 minute episode that he was having so much fun, he was willing to just keep answering questions, and we were willing to keep asking them. And this is really one of the most, in over 200 interviews we've done here, one of the most just intelligent and enlightening conversations about comedy we've ever been able to capture. So thank you to our guest. Thank you to you that tuned in and asked him such great questions, and thank you to you for listening now. I do just want to share a quick disclaimer that the audio quality isn't great. I know we have a high standard here, but through these Skype Q&As, we're still trying to dial in the right audio mixing. So bear that in mind. The content far outweighs the quality of the audio, and you're still going to enjoy this and get a lot of great insight out of it. And there's only one thing left to do. And that is inhale a hot breath. <sighs> With Jesse breath David Fox. Welcome back to Hot Breath Live. Comedians on Skype talking comedy. This is the show where you learn comedy from the pros. If you're watching this on YouTube, just be aware that all the questions are being asked in our Facebook group. So go into the description, request to join the group, and then you can start connecting with guests like today's. 
who today's guest out of almost, I mean, over 200 interviews with comedians, he has been on the get list from the beginning. I was actually going to fly to New York to interview this gentleman before the pandemic. So now lucky for you, you also get to be a part of this by asking your own questions in the Facebook group. So without further ado, welcome to Hot Breath, the one and only Jesse David Fox, ladies and gentlemen. Give it up for Jesse David Fox, everyone. Yes. I, yeah, imagine them clap. Thank you for it. Yes. There's a, there's a sound effect. There's a clapping sound effect people are hearing. So no worries there. So first off, thank you for doing this. I'm a huge fan. You've definitely been an inspiration for this show and just what's possible within a podcast and within the comedy world. So I had a lot of questions as an interviewer, but then also as a comedian. So I want to take a page out of your book and use a case study of one of your interviews to kind of interweave all my questions. So Great. Great idea. <laughs> That's a really good idea. Thought went into that. Don't worry. This was not uh, spontaneous. As soon as I got confirmation, I was like, all right, everything Jesse David Fox, Jesse David Fox, everything. Just like when I booked Cedric the Entertainer, I had like 24-hour notice. So for that entire time, I was just saturating my brain with Cedric the Entertainer, everything. So... For you, a lot of people may not know that Good One, the idea was sparked when you interviewed Jerry Seinfeld, and he said the most interesting thing he likes to talk about is jokes, and you were like, oh, well, there's a show. So I thought we could dive into that interview as like a case study on the entire process of starting out with even how were you able to book Jerry Seinfeld for the interview? Um, well, you know, I'm trying to think that was three or four years, probably around four years ago or five years ago, like to the day. I mean, so I, I've been working at Vulture now for seven and a half years and, um, just as timetable, we've been working at Vulture for seven and a half years and been doing the podcast for about three years. But of my many jobs at Vulture, one is booking Vulture Festival, which is a, uh, annual festival we do with like panels and stuff mm -hmm. and so it was I believe that might even have been the second year so, and second or third year and I you know we were just like thinking of people to reach out to I was always a fan of Jerry um, and we reached out coincidentally that weekend was the weekend before the new season of Comedians and Cars was coming out mm -hmm. so he had something to promote so he it just timing worked and they're like fine we'll do this thing i think the reason he agreed first someone else did an interview with him for vulture it wasn't me but he liked that interview fine enough oh. and then for me to do it i sent him clips of things i wrote about comedy um i i have not heard back if, if he read it or if just his team reviewed it and it's like oh this person knows what he's talking about um but that was sort of it, which was just sort of like, I knew what it, they, I proved that I knew what I was doing. Um, I'm trying to think if I had interviewed John Mulaney by that point. Um, like, I did this big John Mulaney interview. But, and that was sort of it, which was just sort of like, he wanted to do this thing. I proved I knew enough about comedy. And he didn't really have any expectations because he does stuff like this probably periodically and he doesn't like it. He's just like, well, I'll do it. Right. Because that's part of the job. But, um, I don't think he had any expectations of it, like it necessarily being like a thing he would enjoy doing. 
Yeah, and with booking guests, is it primarily... Because it is with him, it was the timing of comedians and cars. Yeah. There's a promotional angle you can spin on it when you're pitching guests. But is it mostly when you're booking a guest? Are you going through a publicist? Is it some of them are friends? But is yeah. what you know? We want to start booking bigger guests on this show, Jesse. How do we do it? <laughs> uh, I mean, it's all through. I mean, a lot of it's through publicists. I mean, like okay. um, even the people I know, um, I book through their publicists because. They're, if they have a publicist, that means they want the publicist to be doing work, and that means they don't want to have to maintain their own schedule, mm-hmm. and it's just like way easier. Um, like a lot of people say yes, and then be like, and then, but not really know if they when they can do it. They pay a person to like tell them when they should be doing interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm always, it's always usually through publicists, um, unless I sort of see someone's going to be in town. So I'm like, hey, you're going to be in town, you want to do it? But um, Sometimes it's through managers, but, and, you know, we'll get pitched movies or TV shows in general from being the site. And then I'll usually just float the idea through those pitches. Like, oh, they're pitching um, a movie and I'll be like, oh, this person's in a movie. Or, um, you know, Netflix has got, I have a good relation with Netflix because I've done a lot of them. So they'll be like, these are specials we have coming up who you'd be interested in and they've helped. Mm. Um do that relationship and then um but you know it's like pegs are useful if it means people are doing press that wouldn't normally do press but i don't necessarily need to do it i think sometimes especially with stand-up specials it's good to have a little break so they're not just sort of in junket mode where they're answering the same things over and over again also you can then sort of answer you can ask them questions based on the things they already answered a million times um so it sort of it varies. It used to be based on if I'm going to be in LA, I reach out to certain people, and if I'm going to be if people are going to be in New York, obviously now it's a lot different because um, everything's done in my apartment. And did you say pegs? Like pegs, sorry, like news pegs is to use jargon. Uh-huh. What um, a news pe- like like a peg is um, something to have a reason for why someone's doing press. So, like, the release of a TV show is... Gotcha, gotcha. And when you're reaching out to a publicist, is it... uh, Do you have a press kit attached to the email? Do you have, like, a template that you use? Um, I should use a template, but for some reason I write the email out every time. Mm -hmm. Where it just sort of explains what the show is, um, explaining who the guests have been, and I try to... Um, curate that based on either who's most famous, who I know the comedian would think is most famous, who are clients of the publicity firm, um, um. and then some like rough numbers. I think also as the show's gotten more popular, and just as it's not even one it's gotten more popular, more people know of it, but also as more publicists know of it because I've worked with their firm, I just sort of like, do they want to do a good one? And they already know what it is. Um, because one a thing is like you know these publicists work together so when a thing is seen as a good opportunity like people know like oh our comedy clients we should try to get them on this show gotcha yeah okay cool so yeah moving on i'm from coming from the bottom up you're now at like the top where people are like reaching up to you so i'm trying to get like what is that climb but you opened up with jim gaffigan so it's kind of like like the show starts with jim gaffigan so it's quite an 
an impressive roster from the jump. Yeah, I mean, I did Neil, Neil and Jim Gaffigan. I recorded in the same day. The first two interviews I did for the show were wow. those the same day. And Jim, I, you know, he just was pitched and he had a special coming out. And, you know, I had enough reputation from just writing in general. Right. That yeah. publicist knew I, that publicist knew I won. And Neil I had interviewed before. Um, but then the fact that I had Neil and Jim was a lot. That like helped me get at certain people. Um, Christian Shaw, I sort of knew from interviewing her in the past, and so that like the first season was a lot of people that I knew. Like the first few episodes were like I had some relationship with, or um, except for Weird Al, which was like a complete shot in the dark. And he just said, and like he was promoting a, th- a small thing. I couldn't believe he said yes. Um, and then from then, it felt like I had enough big enough names that I was able to sort of have like enough people that I can point to. Gotcha. Uh, and then I just kept on going. And then like more famous people, more famous people. And then it's like, at this point, like I have like famous people on the show. That's like part of the show. <laughs> right. Awesome. So let's get into the interview preparation side of it as well, because that's something I value not only in this show and doing research, but then in researching you about your research and hearing that we share a lot of the same practices where we may be listening to an interview at double speed while reading an article about that person, while maybe having their Twitter, like just constantly just absorbing and really trying to learn from all of their different interviews and kind of distilling it into one. So when it came to interviewing Jerry Seinfeld, like what is, what is that preparation like? Cause you had a whole list in the interview that people can see on YouTube. It's amazing. You have like a, you have papers on stage. Like, what is the interview prep for Jerry Seinfeld? I'm trying to remember. I forgot that there's a video of it, so you can see. I mean, I always like long form paper just because that's how my brain visualizes. I, a lot of people are next cards, but I don't memorize order as much as I do space. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jerry, I knew there are certain things I wanted to hit because yeah. it was supposed to be wide ranging, but start with comedians and cars. Um, and I knew, you know, like I was not planning on people necessarily being able to watch it. I I just sort of like, I want to entertain the audience. I want to sort of like move along to different topics. And I knew I didn't want to talk about certain things. And then, so I'm trying to think how much work I did for that. I, I mean, I did less work than I do now, or at least especially at the peak of the show. But I mean, I watched all the comedians in cars. I read... You know, I read every interview I could find, but I didn't like, and I skimmed his sort of book and I, but I didn't like really like, let me read every interview he did in the eighties and try to find that or, you know, which is something I probably would, would have done at the time of the show where I was sort of at a peak. There was this one thing I listened to, which was he did this one interview you can buy as a CD. Um, Mike Rubiglia told me about it. It's called... Oh, it's called like on comedy. On or comedy, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's really interesting, and so I listened to that. You know, because I didn't need to get so deep. Um, I was just trying to get a sense and try to get a sense of the types of things he liked to talk about. Oh. You know, be- because when you're doing public interviews, like in front of people, where people have, where you're trying to the conversation should flow more. You can't edit it. It should be fun for the audience in a different way. You should be setting people up to sort of be able to like 
talk for a few minutes on end and be more performative. You know, you are not trying to surprise them or talk to things that might be sort of complicated to get into. You're trying to do shorter, shorter questions. Um, so I was thinking about it sort of that way, a lot of it. So I knew like, oh, we like talking about um, like the idea of marriage as a subject, I think was the thing. And I asked him about that. And I remember that was a sort of a sample of the type of thing I do now, which is he gave a short answer to a question that I wanted a longer answer from, right? It's like um, someone will in an interview say like, um, really just like an offhand thing where Jerry's like, marriage is like the most interesting thing in the world. And then he'll just sort of move on and then whatever, where I'm like, <laughs> we'll talk about that more. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, honestly, it's like a thing I learned from having a therapist, which is just sort of like, you'll answer something and they'll just say like, can you talk more about that? And it's, and I think it's like a really useful interview tech technique in general, which is don't let a person like people sometimes are in a rush to finish answering. So just be like, no, just keep like, keep on going. Like, you're being interesting. I'm going to ask, you know, so it was a little bit of that, which is like, I know he's interested in this. Let's try to get him to talk about it longer. Um, and that, and, and something's worked other than others. Uh, the example you brought about Jerry somehow talking about his favorite thing to talk about his jokes is, you know, the rest of the quote is something like, but it's really boring to these people. Right. And, and that was a moment where I'm like, that's very, I found that very annoying. Like, I, it's burned with me because it's, like, traumatic. So I'm like, <laughs> I promise you this is interesting to these people. But I couldn't say that then. I actually didn't have, like, tons of questions about it. So it didn't matter. Um, but I also was doing other things at festival. So I couldn't, like, give every single thing I had to it. Gotcha. Compared, compared to what I do now, where it's like, I prepare and that's the only thing I'm thinking about for as long as I can think about it. Yeah, and you've said that you actually, when you prepare, it's you falling in love with the guest, and then the yeah, interview yeah. is like saying what I love about them. It's try well, it's not saying it. It's not telling the person I love them through their face, because I think that'd be weird to them. Well, it's just, trying to convey mm-hmm. to the audience what is lovable about them through my eyes. I guess it's probably a better way of putting it. Like, I want, I'm, you know, it's, it's, um, it's trying to leave people with the perception of the person that I have. And you can only do the best you can, but like, I think it's trying to see people as I see them and the way you see a person when you're in love with them. So it's like being with an extreme amount of empathy of like not being things that might, you might have a problem with about them or, oh, you don't like this part of the joke or you think this is maybe hacky or just not that interesting you still try to like love that part of it and try to have them expand upon it in a way that makes them seem interesting or whatever. And I think it's really about, um, you know, it's, it's, it's helping people understand how to appreciate comedians better, I guess Mm. is a lot of it and Mm -hmm. understanding that they're all different people with sort of like unique sensibilities and ideas of what they're trying to do. And one of my favorite comedians, uh, Alonzo Bowden, just did a Q&A with us, and he was talking about a lot of people think comedy is talking, but it's actually listening. And with interviewing, listening is something I've had to work very hard on, even to you responding then. 
and I'm looking for a moment. You said something about having a therapist, and then instead of me listening to what's next, I'm like, oh, but should I find a place to shoehorn that I researched that his dad's a therapist and that he has a psychology degree at Maryland, but I should be listening to what he's yeah. saying instead. So, like, how, how do you stay in the moment? Or if Jerry Seinfeld does say something like, I, I like talking about jokes, even though these people think it's boring. How do you not then go off and be like, oh, that's a show that's really going to take off. You stay in the moment with him. Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting because I would not call myself a great listener um, as, as podcasters are or like interviewers are supposed to be or tend to be. Hmm. I am a very thorough planner or thinker, I guess would be, which is, you know, as you, you know, I, how would I put it? I, I have a good sense of where the answers are going to go. Even if they've never talked about it before, I have a, whatever it is, I have a rhythm in my head and I, you know, I, I, I call it a story driven interview in so much as that I have an arc in which we're trying to go. And I have a, my brain moves quick enough that, and I have a good enough memory of everything that I was going to ask because they are sort of natural extensions of where the conversation is supposed to go, that I'm able to sort of sort it out. I mean, when it's not, when it's not, when it's um, audio only, it's a lot easier because you can just pause a little bit and you can say, what was I going to say? And I have all the papers out, you know? Um, when I set up to do the interviews, usually when it's in person, I have um, all my questions typed out. I have the joke typed out usually. I type, I, I type out all the jokes. Or find someone or I'll have an intern do it. Mm -hmm. I don't find the process of typing out the joke itself is like um, revelatory. It's just sort of like it's useful to have it so I can know which where in the joke I am timeline was. Um, and I'll have the research there, even though I never look at the printout of the research that I do. But it's like I need sort of a certain amount of like scatteredness to like be able to sort of focus in. And, and it really is... Um, you know, just trying to, trying to do, I, I mean, it's ultimately doing two things at once. I mean, I think I just, that's like, yeah, okay. when I think about what happens in those moments, you know, like in the Moshe Kasher interview, he jumped ahead to a thing that was, that was going to ask, like he was talking about a thing I was going to talk that happens more than anything else, which is someone brings up a thing before I want them to. And then <laughs> I have to decide if I want to talk about that then, or if it messes up the flow and I bring it up later. And as I've been doing more of these, I, um, I'm just getting quicker at deciding that and thinking about what it means. I mean, sometimes I've re-edited interviews to go in the order where it needed to go. What? Not often. <laughs> I mean, once I learned, you know, Mark Marin, his interviews are like completely edited. Oh, Did you have, no, I didn't know that. And for the 1,000th episode, he did an interview with his producer, and they explained that, like, his producer will completely rearrange things if it's necessary for the rhythm of it. And I don't do that. Huh. Because, okay. Because, because Mark, essentially, um, Mark has no plan, so it's just sort of, like, instinctual. So sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Because I have a plan, I don't need to do that, but sometimes I will do it if it is necessary. Um, and what was I going to say? One second. My cat, I oh, was that, was that bug? I have to let my cat out. No, you're fine. Yeah, no worries at all. 
And what the heck? <laughs> she's, going crazy. she's going too crazy for this. No worries. All right. Great questions, everyone. Keep uh, keep commenting with them. We're about to jump into your questions. I'm just selfishly taking this time to also ask him questions. So keep commenting with them, and we're going to get to them. And uh, we appreciate you hanging out with us. I had too much faith in my cat's ability to just chill. And so I was like, you got to get out of here. It's all good. Uh, Rosebud Baker had to, like, let her dog in and out. And uh, it was was no worries. I think Tone Bell, his dog, in the first interview we did together, his dog was barking the whole time. Like, it's, it's all part of it. When I interviewed Maria Bamford, her dogs were there. The first time I interviewed Maria Bamford for the podcast, her dogs were there. And it, they were like, one was snoring, and I thought it was like kind of cute. And then we kept, we were like, that's fine. And then my my producer that I had at the time was like, this is so annoying. So like, yeah, I guess when you don't see the dog, it's like not, it's actually very distracting. Um, but that was in the moment where I'm like, ah, it's fine, I have the dog. And then I was like, in post, I was like, we got to take this dog out. Um, did you do anyway, it? So to answer your question, did yeah, you, the dog. I don't think you can hear the dog. You took the dog. Wow. Okay. Yeah. But yeah, so I was saying about being. Yeah, I mean, it's just really, really knowing. It's interesting because it's not like I like reread my questions over and over again. I just sort of like have a sense of where they are and the type of things they want to do, and try to keep it on track and feel like it's going in order. And if someone's jumping ahead decide if oh this is too interesting sounding to a listener that they're gonna be like wait what is that i need to know what he's talking about right now and it'd be distracting if i don't bring it up or it's like oh they only mentioned it partly in in a mess of things i can bring it up in a different context later and say oh you said this earlier because like ultimately like you only ask one question afterwards and that's like the nature of how interviews go Mm -hmm. so people understand you're going to bring up things people have said in, in, you know, and since that's kind of what I do anyway, which is like, you said this once it's, it's fine. You know, ultimately what they're saying, they said before I was planning on acknowledging they said it before. So it, it, it doesn't really matter that much. You just sort of like have to relax and like you have, you already have the story that you're going to want to tell. This, this reminds me of like Epic bombs of doing interviews. I always ask comedians on here their worst bombing story, but maybe for you, what's an interview, and this could be from good one or one you've done in the past, where everything goes wrong. Like I've had interviews where like the SD card fills up, and then if it's over the phone, the phone drops, then the batteries die. Like I've had all of it go wrong. What about for you? I mean, I had, I'm trying to think of technical difficulties. I mean, like I had a lot of technical difficulties with the Chelsea Peretti one audio wise, but like otherwise, like otherwise the interview was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, before good one, I, when I was just like a guy who would interview people as part of junkets, um, where they're doing 30 phone calls, 15 minutes each. And I'm one of them. And, they don't know who you are. They barely heard what publication they're talking to. And 
to maintain any sort of sanity as that you have to like not be a person. <laughs> so I remember when I did Kevin Hart, it was just sort of the first time. So this is not for the podcast. Mm-hmm. He was just sort of like not there. He, it, I was supposed to interview him at like four thirty on a Friday, but it kept on being pushed back. And I was talking to him now at like seven thirty on a Friday, <sighs> and we only had like fifteen minutes. They knocked it down to ten or whatever. And then he just sort of wasn't there. And I don't begrudge him. I found it very frustrating. But like, because at even that time, I was trying hard to be interesting. But he just sort of couldn't be interesting in that moment because he couldn't be like at all present because he, you, you try to like dehumanize yourself when you do those junkets. When I interviewed Kevin the other time, he was very busy, but I was the only interview he was doing. Like he was on the set of Jumanji. I was in his trailer. He had to leave in the middle to shoot a scene and we picked it up. But he was there he gave me a lot of time um i think kevin's heart kevin's brain moves very quickly so he he is a challenging interview in some ways but like um he was there and he's present and he like tried hard which is like not what you can say for a lot of people especially that famous to like Mm. feel like they want to be good in interviews so like that was one but since i had good one they all they they all would have worked. I don't like, I think by the time I got to more famous people, they had people I had interviewed that I, they respected on. So they knew that this was something to respect. I don't know what happened somewhere along the way. Comedians decided to like treat me nicely. I think I've had some hard time with live episodes because certain performers like feel the need to be the persona when they do live episodes. Um, but that, those are the only ones where I'm like, oh, I wish, and I wish I had more time because live episodes tend to be a hard out. So um, those are the only ones. But, you know, nothing where it's like bombed, mm-hmm. where I'm like, I don't think we can release that. I, um, yeah, I'm trying to think if I'm like, I know I've had conversations like we're going to have to do some work to take out the boring parts, but like, uh, or it's too long but uh-huh. even in those there, I won't say which one but there are certain people who sort of like talk in ways and I was like a lot of this is very boring but a lot of it's very interesting and I know my brain sparked enough of like this is an interesting thing to know there's interesting stuff in there and I just were like take out all the boring parts and then it's fine and you wouldn't know you'd be none the wiser yeah, I've done the same, especially with earlier interviews. Now I don't edit interviews, but early days I would edit out a lot of the filler words, my ums and ahs, and there are there were a few interviews where I was like, this could be sped up, this could be moved along a little bit, but now I yeah. just kind of keep them as is. Hey, I mean, like if you can do it, I mean, it's I I don't edit them because I do the editing in terms of like the structure, and I'm just like. I tell the producer, and I've worked with variety producers along the way. It's like, if it's boring to you, it's boring. There's enough stuff. Like, as long as we get to the end point that I wanted to get to, and and there's times, I can't remember which interviews, but there's times where I fish for endings to feel full circle, and I ask one, I'm like, that's it, but let me, while I have enough time, let me ask this other thing, and the other thing doesn't work. Um, and I'm like, take out the other thing. 
And that's the per yeah, that's the perks of having a producer. This is a one man band here. So it is yeah. kinda like I don't wanna have to spend another fifteen hours on this episode. No, hundred <laughs> percent. I could I mean I want to do a podcast if I had to listen to myself and like think because every to me like once I've heard the information I kinda get bored by it. So yeah, like, yeah. If I've done a full interview, I'm like, I already know all this and you're like but but the listener doesn't. So I, I'm always trying to remember Oh, the listener hasn't listened to 70 interviews with this person mm-hmm. they might have like vaguely remember one at most even if they're fans so i i, I try to like um and account for that 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 part of it at least okay so we've gone through almost the entire arc of the interview here and then we're going to get into questions uh now post interview i'd be interested we could take this to the jerry seinfeld because getting to talk to him as a person is like I remember before the interview, he's asking you, "Are you nervous?" And he's kind of poking at you. It seems like he like it seems like he enjoys to do with people. What about like post interview? Was there a conversation, or was he just was he gone? Um, he was great. I I don't know if I've I probably haven't shared this part of the story as much because um, it comes off as bragging. He he loved he loved the interview. Um, his publicist. Um was like he hates doing press and he loved doing that. Like immediately she he he really enjoyed doing it. He was really nice to me. Um he was really nice to my family. My family was there and they took he took pictures with all my family. I don't think I can he must have taken a picture of me. He, but he was just like, Where are you from? Oh blah blah and then he you know he said like I I always can't remember the exact quote, but I do probably bring it up where he he said you're really interested in jokes or you really care about jokes or something like that and um, I knew what he meant, which was for like, for not a comedian. I think, you know, Jerry is a person who's sort of like he, there's people that are comedians and there's people who are not comedians and he only likes comedians. And if he likes you, you're now a comedian a little mm-hmm. bit. Like comedians and cards with coffee has comedians on it, but also will have like his friends that are now comedians because he thinks they're good. And I, I think part of the reason I, he, I, you know, I, in the interview, I, I proved that I was with it that I was able to move things along that I, you know, just like I got it. And I think he, he talks to so many people who don't get it that he was just so relieved, you know, and he wasn't there long. We weren't like hanging out, but he just really enjoyed doing it. Um, that's why he allowed me to release it as a podcast like years later. They're like, Oh, Jerry wants to do it. You know, they were like, as long as it doesn't preclude him doing the podcast at a later time, <laughs> which we still haven't set up, um, he'd be happy to do it. I mean, who knows? I mean, like, he had especially didn't feel like doing a lot of press around it, so we didn't do it. I mean, maybe I'll, you know, I'll, he has a book coming out. I'll try to do around the book, but... Um, Me too, then. I, I'll reach out to his publicist, yeah. too, then. <laughs> yeah, I think so. That's the time for him to do it. I mean, like, he really cares about comedy, like, a lot. Yeah. And I think he... I think he... I interviewed, you know, by the time I interviewed, it was five years ago, and already the discourse has changed, but he was still coming from a time where it seemed like no one cared anything at all about comedy, and I think he's aware now that people do. Um, so, I, I look, I wouldn't be, like, I remember, I can't remember if this came up in an interview or just in general, where he's like, I think he'd want to do a master class, if I had a guess of, like, what he'd do with his free time. Like, I think he really wants to teach comedy. He, you know, I interviewed Jeff Garland, I was talking to him about something about uh, 
it was either something Chris Rock said or something Jerry Seinfeld said. Because that's the thing with, I think it's like, that's the thing with Jerry. And Chris Rock, too, they, they have these rules that they think are like, that they're the freaking kings of all <laughs> comedy. And, but the truth is, they, like, they both, and, you know, especially Jerry, like, has all these ideas of what comedy should be. And I think he'd have an opportunity to, like, talk about a space where he doesn't think he has to appeal to sort of, like, the mass audience that he had so much, he's already appealed to so much that I think he'd like appreciate just like, Oh, I'm just, I, I'm free to be as boring as I want to be. Perfect. So let's, let's jump into questions. I've been, I've been selfishly holding up this time. Um, asking my own questions. No. Uh, we'll, we'll let fans and, uh, we call our hot breath averse. We call us all hot brethren and sister in here. So let's get to their questions. So Gregory Hardy asks, uh, Hi Jesse, when you're finding yourself chatting with a comic in the real world as opposed to on your show, do you have go-to conversation icebreakers or something you want to know, especially if it's someone you're meeting for the first time? I mean, I'm, I'm not like a chatty person. Um, so in some ways, no, like I don't just like talk to people, <laughs> you know, if I'm meeting a person for first time in an unstructured setting, I'm just not going to talk to them. Um, unless I've already interacted with them on like on Twitter or whatever. And then I'm like, Oh, we've already interacted on Twitter. I'm this person. Um, but so my most chatting is like when they first come to do the podcast and I'm like, hi, I'm the person. Thank you for doing the show. I'll tell them what it is. But to answer their question, ultimately, when I do find myself in a time to chat with them, like be it afterwards, uh, you know, I have a certain amount of gossip because I know a lot of comedians like tangentially. So like, you know, comedians like like to gossip a lot and they like to talk about it. <laughs> it's not even like it's like partly talking trash, but it's, it's a lot of just like this person got this opportunity. Why do you think that is like I have a certain amount of insights on the industry I think a lot of comedians don't have that I can be like, oh, this is why they got this, this is why they got that, this is what I heard about this person. This is why this person, I heard this person's hard to work with. So it pictures a little oh, bit. Oh, who? Who? No, no. There's, <laughs> I mean, they're all, they're all hard to work with. That's the thing. I mean, like anyone can be. There's, there's only so many people who are easy to work with, and that means they're just sort of like so competent so and so easily capable that like they have time to be nice and and present with everybody. Most people are not that confident in their abilities and already so talented that they could not just have to focus on their work. So in my opinion, almost no one's easy to work with. Most people are difficult in some ways. I mean, like, if you have an opinion about how things are, you're going to be in a situation where someone has a different opinion and then you're immediately difficult to work with. And obviously that is also, like, the idea of being difficult is also tends to be incredibly difficult. Uh, the people who tend to be you, how do I put this? There are certain people who get let off the hook a lot easier for being difficult to work with. And I think we like when men, white men are di deemed difficult to work with, it's like they get to be geniuses, not like um, difficult actresses or in the same way. So it, you're aware that said in a gossip situation, you can talk about all the stuff you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. So that's what I tend to do i don't ask them about comedy um you know i'll ask them like what they're doing in town if they need restaurant recommendations or whatever but 
uh, on the basics. And like, I'm not, I'm not like chit chatting if I like see a comedian I sort of like barely know. Cool. And this ties into the next one when we talk about meeting comics with, this is from Imri. He asks, do you get nervous in the past interviewing these famous people and how do you calm your nerves? Yeah, I mean, I used to get really nervous um, before I interviewed anybody. I And it, it felt, I get nervous uh, when I talk to anyone that I'm going to mess up. Like, I don't like talking on the phone usually because, like, that anticipation I really had a hard time with. And that was really up until the point and I interviewed Jerry. And then once I got through that and once it went well, I was like, well, if I can do that, I can do that with sort of anyone. Like, if I can get through that. And what I started to realize is, like, and this is the case often, I think, also with stand-up, which is sort of, like, nervousness and excitement are the same feeling. It's just sort of how you're coding it. So, like, I am still feeling the feeling of nerves, but I understand, like, that as part of what is exciting, especially for live things. Um so many things can go wrong. But then once I'm on stage, it's fine. You know, like I think with anything, I, I get to a point where I'm like, well, it's too late now is what I'll say. Like it's too late now to back up. I have to do it. Mm-hmm. And so that is sort of, that carries me through. And then once you're on it, you're doing it, you realize like they have to answer the questions They're They have the harder job. Um, I already did all the work is what I say to myself. Yeah. You already did all the work. You're, you already wrote the questions down. They're here. You're just going to say these out loud. And so that, that was a lot of it. I think um, with the podcast, I was nervous the show would be bad. And I'm like, how do I make it not bad? Oh, this is going to be boring. You know, every moment I was nervous, it was going to be not interesting. And that, and that made the interview really stressful or tense or the opposite would happen where I had my nerves come so much that I would be like, this is now I'm not interested to do this. I'm like, we already know everything. And that changed when I interviewed Jesus and Mero because they were so fun and so fast and so present that I'm like, Oh yeah, this show is fun. That's like why I did it. That's what the listeners like is that I'm there to have fun. And like the listeners like do enjoy having me be a surrogate to be appreciating these people. Like, I remember when I was interviewing Nate Bargatze, I was, I was nervous or just like feeling like, Oh no, how's it going to go? And I was like, I think this guy talks funny. He, when he talks, I think it sounds funny. He has a funny cadence, literally just listen to it. And then, so, it, and that's sort of what I did, which is like, I've taken that energy and I try to like figure out how to make it into excitement and like have that and not be afraid of being excited. Like having people actually hear that. Oh, that's funny. It's similar to like being a comedian. Like if you're having fun on stage, the audience will have fun. So it's fun how that translates. Yeah. I mean, that is a, one of the better trends of the last 20 years of comedy. Comedians were allowed to have fun on stage. Mm. So like that was like Dave Chappelle was like, I think really big on the like laughing at himself. I can't remember a comedian before him that laughed at himself so much and was also considered good. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> Now everyone does it. Like, but like his cohort, and like if you look at like a lot of the like New York school like killering type people, they're like, you gotta be serious and like 
angry at the crowd or whatever. Right. And and you're like, why? Who's that for? Like, and it's it's like rooted in all these ideas of like <laughs> toughness. But it's like, I think if Dave Chappelle didn't find himself on stage, his his like entire persona would fall apart. And like you see that with everybody. I mean, like if you can naturally organically convey joy, not force it, like but actually organically convey that to a level like if you I mean like Christian Shaw is like one of the greatest ever at it. Like it is truly infectious and like part of your job is to make people feel better. Like like being funny, broadly defined is the goal and being interesting but like part of it is like people are trying to have fun. Like that is a laugh. Mm-hmm. Fun is not like not antithetical to the goal of being a comedian. Yeah, I just did a, a, a special review of Chris D'Elia's new special and was looking at how he uses smiling and laughing as almost tags to his material. It's yeah. very powerful and effective. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, it's partly persona comedy, right? It's like ultimately by the time you get big enough, people like want to just hang out with you. Mm. So like they want you to just be yourself on stage and you don't have to. And certain comedians, care about that more than others certain people are like i'm fine getting whatever laughs i can get like i've worked my entire life to get fans let me give them what they want where some people i think resent their fans or don't don't accept easy laughs from their fans or they try to forget you know it's it's a balance that's really hard like you need fans to allow yourself to push yourself more to do you have fans mean you have a more patient audience which is useful because that means you can do something more interesting mm. but they also have, it's really forgiving and it can allow you to sort of like do nothing. Um, so it, I, that's always what I, I find it fascinating when I talk to comedians, what the relationship to their audience is and how it changes and where it's at at different points. It's probably, it's one of like the many things I, I probably ask every comedian about it in a certain way. All right. So let's, uh, we're at 45 minutes right now. Can we do like through two more questions? Yeah. I mean, I have nothing else. You're good. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Yeah, everyone quarantined. Yeah, it's been... Yeah, yeah we've just been throwing some Hail Marys for these Q&As. Like, I was... That's why I asked you about booking guests, because I'm like, I'm just going to start reaching out to, like, Seinfeld and, like, Tom Papa and, and like, Sinbad and just shoot for the moon yeah. here. I mean, the... I try to think about who might have a mic, because, you know, the audio quality without a mic for us is hard. Mm-hmm. And, but... um if people are also actors or like script writers, they still are busy. That is the, that is the one thing like, or they are, they're saving their press. I mean, like there's certain people that have been able to get that are like excited to do it. Cause this is all they're trying to do this week. But you know, some people are parents, right? So they are like, you have to think about if, if because they're a comedian, that means their job during this time is to be a full time parent. Like all that stuff is, is, thing that you have to think about of like okay how am i factoring now into this person just trying to get through this okay so let me try to amalgamize these because we have people asking somewhat of the similar questions so what we'll do is we'll combine these two kyle groom and chase bonin asking the same things in terms of um well one what's your favorite comedy album or special and also pretty much like what's your favorite joke? If you could take a joke from a comedian and make it your own, what would it be? Oh, yeah, the joke. Um, okay, what is my favorite special or album? Um, 
I want to think. Um, you know, you know, it it, it varies. Um, so it's hard. I mean, like Christian Shaw is my favorite comedian. Her live at Fulton of live at the Fillmore special was really um, meaningful to me. I saw her work on it because she, I really liked her at the time. And then what you saw, which was this sort of like really mixture of sort of like an Andy Kaufman East stunt, the sort of blending of real life and, and stage persona, but also this idea of joy all at the same time. I was really um, special and inspiring. It like, this was like, this was probably seven years ago before like a lot of people were working hard to have interesting specials. Like, <laughs> now people are like thinking hard about like what their comedy is and what they want to do. Even like people who you think of as like not intellectual comedians are like trying to think about like, oh, it should be shot in this style for this reason. But this was like a really early case of someone like treating the special as a visual art form and like an experiment. And it has lots of funny jokes and it's so silly and like a specific voice. Um, so that is probably my favorite special. I mean, like Kyle Kinane makes me probably laugh the most, but his specials tend to be a little bit limited because they're Comedy Central, so they edit them really, really tightly. And like just sort of the cadence of his jokes. I can't totally remember. They sort of all blur, so I don't know which ones is sort of my favorite. Um, but his first album, Death of the Party, was really seminal to me getting back into comedy. That and... Um, Hannibal's first album, My Name is Hannibal, whatever, were really seminal to me. Like, um, I had like a eight year lull or whatever where I like was not into comedy as much, and those those albums came out. And I saw them live, and I was like, they're amazing. Um, my favorite joke. I feel like I used to have an answer. Um, like I have. Um, Um, hmm. I don't know. I mean, I have so many that I, I will just rapid fire go through jokes that I think about often because um, Mitch Hepburn has a joke why I once saw a wino eating a grape. I said, man, you have to wait. Hmm. I tried to do those. No, Mitch Hepburn, man, you have to wait. And I was just <laughs> like, I couldn't, I, I could just like that. The world he created. Oh, now I remember. I do have an answer for my favorite joke. Um, so, but there's that. Um, Mike Rubigo has a joke called Massachusetts about his um, witch does the thing that I is so incredible when a comedian can do this, and not a lot of people can't do it, which is build the structure in a joke where by the end of it, it feels like an inside joke. Um, and he's, he's the best at it. The probably second best at it, like, oddly enough, is Hannah Gatsby. But um, she does it differently, and she's very clever about it. Um, so what I often say is my favorite joke is from the Roseanne Barr roast. Anthony Jeselnik had a joke, which was, um, you know, Roseanne, you're a tyrant or something. When, you know, when you worked on... Roseanne, everyone um, 
everyone walked on eggshells around you because you would not stop eating eggs. <laughs> and what I love about that joke, <laughs> and like I asked Anthony about it, and he was sort of like, I didn't even think twice about that joke. But what I what I loved about it was it just sort of is so visual and such a small thing. Mm-hmm. And like I love how gross jokes can paint these worlds um, in such small amounts of words. Yeah. And I always love that, like when jokes feel like icebergs and you can sort of t- tip of it. And um, that one felt like there's just so much to the sort of like world he's painting in that joke. Um, there's a million more, but that is the one I think I often say is my favorite joke, just because I also like can remember it and complete. We're like, I don't know. I love Nate Parkensi's dead horse joke, but like, I can't remember the whole thing. But you had even, not only did you know the joke, but you had great timing within it too. Like you had the pacing down. Well, the, you cannot, you could not stop eating eggs. Egg. It was just like, yeah, it was, I mean, like, I mean, his persona is so obvious. Like he, his sort of thick, his cadence is uh, easy to copy. Right. But you were, you that. held back on the Mitch Hedberg one, but then Anthony Jeselnik, you could fall into, but you know. I actually, because, um, I don't know why it is. I think, I probably had been telling the Mitch joke longer, so I have sort of like started telling it out loud without doing it with a cadence. Where I'm telling every, every time we do the Justin joke, I do it with a cadence mm-hmm. because I maybe more comfortable to do it. Um, there are Mitch jokes that I could do. I mean, like you just know it. I think it's sometimes funny to not do it with a cadence and see what it still is as a joke. But um, the other one I always think of is a. Uh, I had a friend come up to me. He goes, "Guess what I love? Mashed potatoes." Like, man, you got to give me a chance to guess, or whatever. <laughs> but it's like he was such a uh, like you know, for as much as he's thin, thin, thought it was a one-liner, he was like such a persona and like <sighs> rhythmic comedian. Oh my gosh, yeah, he's one of the Sinbad's the comic that in, sparked the idea to become a comedian for me with afros and bell bottoms. Really? Oh yeah. The onesie and the earring, like I was his, the fun, like you were talking about, he has fun on stage. He's seeing him have fun on stage and that special was like, oh, that looks fun. I'd like to do that. And then, you know, it takes several years to actually decide to pursue your dream. But that's what planted the seed, I think. Was it partly that he was clean or is it that you just saw it? Like, I always wonder with Sinbad, like I, I know a lot of people, like he was the only comedian that a lot of people got to watch because he was clean and famous in the 90s. Well, I am a I'm a clean comedian now, which was like a conscious yeah. decision starting out. Is that I always just wanted to be clean so I could entertain more people, like a Brian Regan or like a Sinbad. But at the time, I think I was just younger, and it just looked like he was having fun, and there was like a you yeah. know his specials had like a theme going on behind it, and he was dressed crazy, so he just made it look like a fun activity, and not just standing with a mic stand, you know, just projecting. Yeah. Yeah, no one's having more fun than that guy. Oh my! And you got to interview him. I'm I'm in talks with him. We we've been going back and forth, but uh, we haven't nailed it down yet. Yeah, he's hard. He he's a. You can't keep him down. You, like <laughs> that is he. You know that about him. If you listen to him on other podcasts, he just goes. Mm-hmm. He can hang with anybody. It's incredible. I don't know if you listen to the podcast Hollywood Handbook, but it's a very insular word. A lot of people go on it and they can't hang. And he's just like jumped in like he's part of the show and he's but his brain is so quick 
that you don't need to be there. And to me, that is not an interesting interview. So, like, you have to be really conscious, like, stop, follow, do a follow-up question because he'll move on and you won't actually get an answer. Mm-hmm. So he's wild, though. He's, he just, his brain moves so quickly. And, like, the way comedians talk about seeing it, it's, like, wild. He was the first comedian that I ever saw. Really? Yeah. When I was in, I went to a family trip to Las Vegas. Not ever, ever. Like, I don't know what the first comedian, but, like, the first comedian I saw live. Yeah. We went out a family We saw him. And I only remember, like, a joke he did that wasn't very good. But um, I couldn't remember anything else about the show. I have no sense of how long it was. I know, like, I liked it. But, um, yeah, it's just wild. He's, a, he's, I think he, you know, I think he's, he's due for, I don't know, a comeback. I think people are ready for him. Oh, and he's known to improvise a lot. Like, he's known to always do a different show and always mix it up, which is something that I strive to do but i still get caught i mean i've been doing comedy 10 years but i i still can get caught in like the math and structure of comedy but now i think i just i just released my first special and i think getting that material out there has freed me up to follow that instinct more on stage of being a little more in the moment but now there's a pandemic that kind of just i released the special on february 1st that was my 10 year anniversary And then, like, I'm like, oh, here we go. Now we're going to start open field running again. And then now it's just like, oh, we're back. We're stuck here now. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's an interesting period for every community. But I think you in that case of like, I think after people put out their first anything, mm-hmm. which is like, here's a collection of what the audience told me I should do. And like throughout the years, I did a bunch of things. And this is what the audience said they liked. And sometimes, there you'll be brilliant like you'll have a vision and coincidentally like like the comedians put you in a box and that box was what we call genius but often it's just like these are what they thought was good and i was just trying to hang and now it's the time where you're like well actually like what do i want to say and why do i want to say it and what is the goal that i want to get from it like i now know i could put together an hour of things that people will find funny which is like heart that's part of the job or it can be but it's like well now i decided i want to be like great at this thing opposed to being good at it i want to be great at this mm-hmm. like well then you need time to like what is actually what i want to do um and that's hard some people can never do that i think there's i think people especially it happens a lot in new york because there's so many shows that you can kind of like just get in a flow of like 10 minutes 10 minutes 10 minutes and you're constantly doing stuff about New York city and you're doing stuff about like topical stuff. And like, it's interesting to do topical and it's in the moment, but like if you're just responding, you're never asserting who you want to be. And, but you can maybe find that on stage, but part of that just means becoming an interesting person Mm -hmm. or being a person that like has a belief of like what they want the world to sort of what, what world they're trying to convey and I think it's good. I, like, I hope comedians use this time to like, well, now that I'm not dependent on the audience, let me just like think about what, I, what things do I have I not talked about that I like are actually novel. Like, especially because everyone's going to come back and have these pandemic jokes. You have the opportunity of not doing that. So, yeah. You know, like, even if you're not like a pen and paper person, like, think about, you know, different things. And, what have you not seen people do that you feel like should be talked about? 
That, I'm always looking for the contrast or the inverse of what seemingly works for people in everything I yeah. do. And that was something with like the comedy special. Everyone's trying to like sell them to a network or a platform to get on. I was like, well, what happens if you do it independently and then try to sell it all yourself and do that? And I'm always looking for just like with this podcast, comedians are doing podcasts. Well, how could I do it differently? Oh, Instead of trying to outfunny the guest, I'll just do well thought out researched interviews. Yeah. And always looking for like a, a inverse to what the trend seems to be. So yeah. I'm sure it'll pay off in like twenty years. <laughs> yeah, whenever twenty years you'll get to do comedy again. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I, I it's, uh, yeah. I mean, I think about it constantly. It's, it's just like it would be really interesting. Ha you know, um, there's a lot of comedians who talk about. 9-11 really motivating them and you saw like a generation of really good comedians that came about like about 10 years around 2011 you're seeing like what we think of as like a huge wave of great comedians and it's like all after 9-11 all these people are like time to actually pursue my dreams and he had more people doing it which meant more points of view which meant like more people pushing each other like everything became harder um and you just got you know what it was a boom of like incredibly good comedian and now it just keeps on going which is nice but uh <laughs> like these moments are a thing that it can remind people to like do work with integrity and do do work with with purpose and i and i think that is i think that gets lost a lot for comedians because you're so much of it is just trying to keep your head above water what do you think the effect coronavirus will have on comedy moving forward? I don't know. I mean, it's it's, it's possible to even know when it will start again. I mean, yeah. like, I think um, there's people really would like to see live comedy right now, and I think, but can't, <laughs> at least in New York, especially. But um, and that dynamic is interesting, which is like. People are going to come back and they're going to be really excited to do it. And I think the it's hard. I mean, it's also like depends on how the election goes, you know, like not not even like regardless of how political it is. It's just sort of like it, the elections are going to be on everyone's mind. It's like there's going to be all of that. But like in a year, depending on how the election goes, it it. it it will shape it. I mean, to get, I'm, for example, I'm like, I bring this up because I'm like literally working on a book proposal. And part of it, it's like, I'd be saying like, I will not submit. This book is not done until at least a year after the next inauguration. Hmm. Cause like I, you need that time to sort of look back upon it. But I, I, you know, this is what I hope, which is comedians and comedians and audiences. It's a sort of like distance makes the heart grow fonder. And they sort of remember that they're doing this for each other. Like that comedians want the audience to have a good time and they want to be deferential to like what they're, what would be, make them feel better or like what is useful for them. It's just sort of, it's hard to describe, but like, I, I think there's a certain vernacular that comedians have for audiences, like the killing and destroying and all that stuff, which I get, but that is built out of a time period that does not exist anymore in which comedian where audiences are bad and that audiences are stupid 
and audiences don't know what good comedy is. That was like that vernacular came out of the eighties when like there was no comedy literacy whatsoever or comedy savvy and comedians succeeded in spite of their audiences. And that cynicism still exists. And I understand why, but like there's so many people who know more about comedy than ever before who want good comedy and are like, who want something from comedians. And I think comedians have taken that for granted. And I think audiences have been, there are certain audiences that I think are impatient with comedians in a way that they shouldn't be, or want all comedians to be the same thing, which I think they shouldn't be. And I hope when reunited, everyone just sort of is more patient with each other. Mm-hmm. To like, if a joke bombs, don't be like, you guys are wrong. You guys are idiots, which you see all the time, right? It's like, the audience is always right. The comedian is always right. Like, we're figuring this out together. It's a collaboration. It is a, especially, we're talking about stand-up, and stand-up jokes are a co- collaboration between the audience and the comedian. A stand-up joke without an audience is not a stand-up joke. It is a different thing. That's what we all agreed upon what this is. And it should be more of a, we should accept it as a sort of collaborative atmosphere. It's like, people don't talk about alt comedy and club comedy as much anymore. But I think the thing that was always lost about like what is good about a a club, an, an alternative community is the community aspect, which is like this feeling that the audience is part of the process. That is what can make stand up is what makes stand up special. So like, why are we turning our back on that? That like, this is the medium that truly is collaborative. Like jam bands pretend they are and jazz says they are or whatever but not really. You're still like kind of responding to a vibe where like literally material is defined by what the, the audience says works. So that's what I hope. I don't know if that'll happen. I mean, it's possible that like everyone will just be really scared and like no one gets any laughs, but I'm an idealistic person. And this is sort of like when I dream of what comedy is, it's like this sort of utopia where like, it's like we're all in a sort of commune of like, creating this art together that was beautiful (laughs) (laughs) that was beautiful i'm gonna put that on a plate and glaze it and then hang it really big plate (laughs) it'll be a platter um so on the inverse of positivity actually this is a positive spin though with uh sirium asking what is your concept of failure and how do you take setbacks my personal idea of it mm-hmm. or a failure state I, yeah you're personal um, let me think um it's how do i think about failure i mean i i, I don't feel particularly entitled to a lot so I don't expect, you know, I'm not optimistic in terms of my expectations for myself. So I, I, I sort of don't get let down on personal things in that, in that way, sort of where everything else beyond myself, I sort of have these like grand beliefs of what things should be like. And I get incredibly disappointed when things don't live up to it. But I sort of like, you know, this was all the third option of a career. I, I, I was trying to, work in the music business, like writing was an accidental byproduct of me trying to work in the music business. 
and try to work in the events business and earnestly trying to work hard for that. And it just like didn't work. Um, I was not a good fit for that industry. They didn't like me. I, you know, I tell this story a lot, but when I got let go from working at a major agency, William Morris, like, you're yeah. too, William Morris, I was too sensitive to work. You're too sensitive to work here. You're too much of an intellectual to live in Los Angeles. Uh, he's like, get out of here, get out of town is what he said. So I, I feel incredibly fortunate that I get to do this, anything around this. Like I'm, I think I've, I'm on below, but beyond privilege that I have like these niche interests, niche, niche abilities, and the marketplace had deemed them valuable. So like I've had certain opportunities that were trying, but I, I sort of like just keep on doing like I realized along the way, like I used to be motivated by like feelings that needing for legacy and stuff like that. And, and wanting to leave a mark or whatever. And then somewhere along the way, I just sort of like accepted that I enjoyed the work. Like, and I, I, I say that to sort of anybody about like what should motivate you. I mean, you can do whatever you can't do and motivate you what motivates you. But like, you are happier if you're motivated by the work than the results of the work. So once I realize I like what I'm doing, as long as I keep on getting to do it, I sort of am not incredibly worried or incredibly affected by setbacks because I'm still getting to do it. You know, like I have a podcast that I have a career getting to do that I have complete control over what it is. That is more than most people who are creative get to say about the thing that they're doing. Like I interview enough comedians to know that they have to compromise to get certain sort of things when they create TV shows or whatever. And that sucks. And they want more things they can control. Well, I already have a career doing that thing. So I think that is what I remind myself with. I, I don't get down. I'm a pretty medium person. So I don't get particularly up uh, in terms of my mood. I do not get like crazy excited. I like from, I never get to a 10. I don't usually get to a one. I'm usually between four and six, often at a four. So that doesn't really help. But in terms of what the advice would be, it would be like, as long as you like doing it and are not like, it's even the same thing with before I got a career writing, I was like, I like writing. I at least have a hobby for the rest of my life. I think people like are not, we, I don't know when we decided hobbies are not allowed and that we can't, they can't be meaningful. Mm -hmm. But like, if you have a, if you like have a means of expression, but it's not what you get paid to do, like that is a hundred percent okay. That is like what most people did. There's a lot of great artists who did it as like their side gig. Like, just like remind yourself that you're doing because you like creating it, and, and then the failure of it is doesn't matter as much because that's not like why you're doing it. I love it. Oh, and uh, Carter. Carter Ashton Bryant says, love, good one. So we're, oh, we're spreading the love here. Oh, thank you. So, Carter Ashton Bryant, was that his name? Yeah, Carter Ashton Faber Bryant. Um, he actually that booked is. me in Arkansas last year, actually. He's been a member of the Hot Breathverse for several years. That's great. What a name. Uh, that's solid. He, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, Jesse David Fox, you know, that's a strong name. That's quite a yeah, boom, but boom, boom, like, boom. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, but his name is like all last name. <laughs> <laughs> um, I like. I mean, mine. I, mine, I, I think my name does work, and I do think some of it works. It is like it does have a sort of like set of punchliney thing of like da 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 da. Probably why I went by it. I mean, I first went by it for SEO reasons, but oh, um, interesting. Yeah, I mean. And then, like, I went by SBO regions, and then I had a, a roommate. This was ten, almost 10 years ago. Was like, I was like, does it sound too pretentious? It's like, it's okay to be pretentious. You're trying to be a writer. I was like, yeah. And then I think it sort of worked. I think it does make me seem more robust than I am. Oh, you, hey, you're, you're a tastemaker. You know, I mean, yeah, I you're, you're an authority in this industry. So, I mean, you, you have a right to think your opinion matters because it really does. And it moves, yeah. <laughs> moves mountains in a yeah, lot of I ways. That's true. I guess if people like, no one cares what you think. I was like, well, literally, that's not true because like people have agreed to like uh, employ me to write those opinions, mm-hmm. and people like go, thank you for this opinion. This is very useful. Um, and I try to, I mean, like that is, you know, um, that I did a recently when I did that list of stand-up recommendations. I was like, I need to make. I, I was like, this has to be useful, and I want to use my authority not to tell people like what's good or bad, but like, I know I can see comedy in enough ways of like I can make people find comedians they wouldn't think to listen to because um, how people recommend recommend how people recommend comedy I think is tremendously lacking. Um, mm. So, you know, I guess I, I don't take my authority lightly is what I would say. And how is that? response been in the actual industry because this, this ties into justin williams question who actually said my full name is justin philip gordon patrick williams so wow. yeah <laughs> I, those are all strong middle name options if you wanted to go by three <laughs> but his question ties into your uh, influence in the industry and i'd also like to know a tag on the inverse of this but he says have you gone to comedy clubs or got to sit in the green room getting the VIP treatment. And I would also think of like the opposite where have you gotten where they're like, oh, you don't like my special? I, I'm not worth the list? Things like that. So like have you seen both sides of that? Yeah, I mean, I I have never really written much negative. And that is not because I don't have negative opinions. I just sort of like I'm not good at it. I don't think my opinion about what I think is not good is interesting. Hmm as much as I think of things as failings. So I think there's so much, like when I, I didn't, I don't write that many reviews, which is why I don't think of myself as a critic too much, but um, the only time I really wrote things negative was some people so big that I think it was built on the understanding. We already know that they're good. So like I can write things negatively, hypothetical about Dave Chappelle, because like there's a certain amount of understanding of like who we already is. Um, I don't know. I've never met Dave Chappelle. I can't imagine he has much interest. I'm like friendly enough with Neil or people who like Dave Chappelle. I've had comedians talk to me about things I, or a thing I wrote about Dave Chappelle, um, hmm. which um, was interesting conversations. It was sort of like, I wrote a negative thing about a show and they're like, it was hard to read this because I saw a person kill it. And I'm like, yeah, but you have, it's hard for comedians to do this. It's one of the hardest things for comedians to understand, which is like, just because like people are laughing does not mean you're doing a good job. Like you're doing the job, but like, um, I was talking to Hannah Gatsby, how controversial she is. And she has a story about seeing Jim Jeffries tell these really harsh jokes about lesbians. 
and being in the audience for that and laughing because you're compelled because you're part of an audience, but also like it's more, you feel more safe to laugh than to not laugh. Like I, so hmm. there's a bit of that, which is like, Oh, just because they're laughing actually might mean you're doing a bad job. It means you're like having people laugh at jokes that they don't agree with, not because you're doing something magical it's that you're just sort of manipulating the audience in a way that is like less artful and more just sort of like, um, peer pressure. All to say, I don't, no one's confronted me. We're like, you said something mean. Mm-hmm. Um, cool. I, I, I only go to the green room if I know them kind of well. There's not tons of comedians who I like say are my friends. Um, like, any of the ones I do say are my friends, like I will more likely say hello to them afterwards than like hang out during the show. The, um, the, and also I don't want comedians to know that I'm there hypothetically because I don't know. I think it'd be so weird if they did crowd work and they're like, Hey, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, Oh, I'm one of these people. But, um, the closest is if I do festivals, if I do my podcast at festivals, I will be then in the mix and then I sort of like will hang out with people in those contexts. I mean, probably the closest was I went backstage at Montreal for roast battle and I like was in the green room talking like Jeff Ross with like a lot of famous people. And I was like in the mix that, but um, it's, I don't know. Like I, I, it's not that it's like for only for journalistic integrity reasons of like, oh, I can't be friends with comedians. How how would I be able to report from? It's only like, I don't like talking to people that I don't know really. So it's mm. like I just don't want to sit around and be awkward. Like then you you know, um, I don't want people like, what are you doing here? Like I think that is the bigger reason. Um, you know, like people want to hang out with their friends. Yeah, cool, nice. So let's let's two more here. Uh, dos mas. It's and this one we can actually. Um, let me see if I can answer this one. And maybe if you have, it, it's I. He's asking. Imri's asking. Have you ever tried stand up? Now you tried it once. You got laughs. Realized okay. I'm not the laughing like all these comedians. I'm glad I got it out of my <laughs> yeah. system. But I'll just stick to officiating weddings. Is that the gist? Is there anything I'm leaving out yeah. with your stand-up experience? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the truth is before I did stand-up, I had done story reading things as a writer in New York get asked to do. And I try to write those as funny as possible. Like, I think the more relevant question is, a, have I tried to, like, do things funny? Like... Because, yes, I did stand-up once. I don't think it was um, too um, revelatory to my process as a interviewer or understander of comedy. Where'd you do it? I think, Where was it at? Uh, I can't remember the name of it. It was, like, this show in Greenpoint. It was just, like, it was just, like, a Oh, it show. wasn't, like, it was a like club not, or anything. Okay. No. Gotcha. Um, it's a place that had comedy, but, like, mm-hmm. um, but, like, I have been trying to create comedy in different forms for as long as I really have been a writer. I mean, like I got into writing as like a blogger primarily, 
So like blogging is writing. It is like essentially writing its joke. Writing it is having a premise, articulating premise, blah blah. Writing punchline. I've like written scripts. I've written plays um, that have played for audiences, and so I I have experience with sort of inner workings of writing comedy and my own personal relationship to how to think about it. And that I think is necessary for me as an interviewer is to be able to think about what creating feels like. And the way in things manifest and sort of the relationship between having a big idea and having small ideas and how they relate. Like, oh, I want this piece to be about, um, I don't know, um, connectivity and then, but like ultimately it's like a workplace comedy about whatever, or you want right. it to be about like, that is like what the job associated with comedy writing is, is sort of like, how can I tell a story or how can I do something that is small ideas, that small story that is about a bigger thing without having to point a red sign that says like, this is the bigger idea. You can do that. I think it's less graceful. I think there is effect to that. I think a lot of people prefer that because they like to know what the thing is about. But like, if you watch Jerry Seinfeld's most recent special as an example, especially the first half, like I think a lot of people dismiss Jerry Seinfeld as like just writing jokes about nothing, like writing jokes about small things and writing jokes about food or like these mini school topics. And there's no substance behind it where if you are open to it. Like Jerry Seinfeld is a deeply ex existential comedian. Like he's not writing about nothing as in like no things. He is writing about nothing. He's writing about nothingness. He's writing about the meaninglessness of what we put meaning into. Hmm. And he is underlining it. He goes like these words that we decide matter. Look how meaningless their meaning is. They are so flexible to a point that it is nothingness. Like, all of his jokes are about the things we decide to put value in that actually have no real value. And, and it's like, I mean, it's like, it is like any great existentialist work, but he is not saying I'm an existentialist. This is my show. It's called waiting for Jerry Doe or whatever, mm -hmm. or like some play. It's just like, he's able to sneak that in. And I think that is really beautiful. And that is a thing that is by creating, you sort of have that relationship. And I think a lot of critics think of what they do as creating in the same way. Um, and I think of the interview as a show that I'm creating, the story that I'm telling. Yeah. So, but as a result, that means I'm exposed to the type of things that sort of creative people that are exposed to. I don't think like having to do stand up would feed what I need to do, which um, comedians have asked me before. And, and I, I often say like, my job is not to understand comedians better because I think I understand comedians enough. It's to best be able to under explain comedians to audiences. And that means I need to be closer to the audience than the comedian. So I, I did, spending years as a comedian, I don't think would actually make better because then you sort of build certain sort of cynicisms or whatever that I don't think would be useful. Um, so that is an incredibly long answer to answer your short question. But <laughs> uh, I don't plan on doing it again. I haven't, you know, 
uh, I have done more story things. Mm-hmm. Someone's asked me to do one in quarantine. I don't know if I will because, as I think a lot of comedians have realized, like telling jokes about audiences, like actually, is really embarrassing feeling. So I don't know. Yeah, but you you do have humor that you can weave in to good one and like blade frank had tagged it up he brought up like the laughing round you know what i mean and is yeah. it is it impossible not to laugh when you're explaining it to a guest you know that was once i had that idea which was incredibly early on uh that was that for the most part the show was what i thought it was going to be at the beginning except more i didn't think comedians were going to give me so much time or give me so much so I wanted the interview to be short. I didn't want it to be like so enveloping of the, per- the person was. And I realized that is actually sort of part of what, what's in the show. But once I had the idea for the laughing round, the name, regardless of like what it would be, it's when I was like, this show is me. That's when I like really embraced the show. Because mm-hmm. like, otherwise the show felt like it only sort of captured how serious I was or how thoughtful I was or how heady I was. And that was part of me, but I felt like, I think of myself as a particularly silly person um, and a particularly stupid person. <laughs> and, and, and I, and I wanted the show to sort of be able to represent more of me. And, and that contrast I think is really funny. So, um, so every time I do it, I know the comedian doesn't know it's going to happen. And it comes at the um, most unreasonable time. Because I asked the usually the most serious thing, they say sort of this like, oh, hopefully some beautiful, poignant thing that ties everything together. And then like, now I say some dumb pun that doesn't really work. It's so <laughs> confusing to them. It's not funny to most of them. Like, some people like it a lot, but very few. I think enough to people I feel like who like, like Tim Minchin really liked it. But most people are like, nothing which is the funniest thing. <laughs> some people like play along and they get the joke is bad so they underline the joke is bad and some people like laugh because they know that i know the joke is bad but when i get nothing it's so funny because mm. they're just like um so that's funny that i don't know and it's funny when i'm embarrassed to do it because i know they won't like it like i knew chelsea peretti would hate it or um i know natasha leggero hated i think when i said it because she had listened to the Moshe episode before she agreed to do it and I knew when I said it, it was just like not cool. And her whole thing is that she's cool. So I knew she wouldn't like it. And she's like, oh, I guess I didn't think I, I didn't know we get to this part. I was like, yeah, I know you didn't know that because you wouldn't agree to do the show. <laughs> um, you know, I was embarrassed to say it with Mark Barron, you know, because he's just like these cool people. So that right. adds a new. Um, but then once I realized that people like it, um, then it's nice. And I'm like, oh, this is a thing that people like. Then like, um, I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't try to over outshine these comedians in terms of how funny I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there is something, the contrast to me is just like funny in the abstract, regardless if it's like what makes you laugh. It's just like, here's this person who has thought more about comedy than anyone you can imagine. And then like, this is the lesson they learned is this joke. All of it is very funny to me. Um, and yeah, and then it's just sort of like the rhythm of doing it. I, I think it's just like, I'm so happy it's there because otherwise um, it, the show would just be like so serious and 
so unaware of itself that like I'm unaware that this is like first you know like I think comedy has a hard time with earnestness and pretentiousness for obvious reasons and like to be just like nonstop earnest would feel like out of step with what comedy is and I and I think that's what like reminds people that like you know like I'm oh we're still aware of like what is like the job of comedy or what is the tone of comedy or like it, it's just sort of like I think it, it punctures a certain balloon and having it be every episode I think makes it so that I don't seem like some weirdo who like doesn't think comedy is funny is and only like takes it as like sacred text mm. Kaboom. And the final question from Wayne Flake Jr. And he asks, as a podcaster, okay, a podcast question. He says, as a podcaster, what is one major don't do and one major do-do? And, oh, he giggled at do-do. And how, yeah. how can Joel make Hot Breath Podcast the most respected comedy interview podcast behind good one i may have added that last one sure um what not to do and what to do um i mean it's hard i mean you have to know what your show is mm -hmm. right so like if your show is not doing research and you do research it'd be really weird i mean like i think it's it's um so i you know i want i feel like you want a short answer for this of like don't blank do work hard um <laughs> okay don't book the same type of person over and over again i think that is a problem with comedy in general i think it is a com a problem you'll see often with comedy podcasts which is if you book the same type of person over and over again they become less interesting and same thing with shows like and it's not like i always said part of the goal was to show the intra diversity in comedy and like diversity people like only see often hear one way which is like oh different races or whatever but i'm talking about like all sorts of diversities different types of comedians who do different types of things who do different types of jokes but also who have different backgrounds because like if you just have like 10 straight white male comedians who tell like ironic, edgy jokes that with the same cadence, none of them will seem interesting. But one of those people will sound interesting if you have them in the middle of a storyteller and a person who sings songs and a person who like writes sketches. Mm -hmm. Like, um, and I think you'll see that that a lot of podcasts, podcasts I respect, don't try to do that they don't try not to do that i think a lot of them go like hey these are my friends these are the people i can get and it's like work harder like actually think about who your guests are think about the order of your guests like i don't dismiss it like actually think about how there's like your audience wants to be find people interesting and I think that that is the thing that I think you see a lot. What to do. I mean, I guess that is also what to do. Book different guests. But, um, you know, be true to yourself. I mean, like, I think it's like, well, I think this is, I think being true to yourself is really easy to say once you've found what yourself is. 
but be open to observing yourself. Hmm. You know, I always say, um, I always say, it says once in tweet, which is like every interviewer should has, should have the experience of being interviewed. And by that, I mean, they should go to therapy. But I do think the process of figuring out who you are and what you value is, is paramount in your paramount in your ability to create work that responds to yourself. Like, I think, and like, it, I started the show because I was interested in dro- jokes and I wanted to show people that jokes were hard to do or whatever. And then I also wanted to show that not all comedians were the same types of person. But as time has gone on, the show's become much more about my worldview and how um, special I think comedy is. And to sort of be a surrogate, to show people how to treat comedy more specially, to get more out of it. And that's sort of like what I, that became a, and that took a lot of work of trying to figure out like really what I want to get out of it. And I think that's harder work than to like always make sure you have a segment or whatever, which mm-hmm. I think is useful. But mm-hmm. um, I think the real answer is like, really think about what you want this thing to be yeah. like that's, but that's the only thing I know. Like there's people who will give you the exact opposite advice because they're like, trust your gut, right? There's trust your gut people. And they'll say, trust your gut. Figure out if you're a trust your gut person or if you're think about who you are person and then do that. If you're a trust your gut, don't do what I say. Do whatever feels natural. (laughs) Nice. And when when it comes to your gut, what do you think now that you have a context for this show, what we're trying to achieve here where you're saying you want to create comedy literacy for fans. We want to create comedy literacy for comedians, but we're getting bigger name guests, but. What can I do to help take this show to the level that I believe it should be at, which is at Just for Laughs Festival, at these different, like, credible, not that I seek that for validation, but just to help more comedians and to also, of course, build listeners so we can get Judd Apatow to sponsor this one like yours. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I think you, um, I mean, like, find a network you can be a part of probably helps. I mean, you have a, your guests are big enough that there probably is a network that maybe would take you on, but because um, cross promotion is probably the biggest way people find out about podcasts. Okay. Um, and that's that's like it. I mean, like I was al- always from the, from the beginning attached to a major media company, so like there was a value in having me come to Just for Laughs, partly because I was me being there is useful. Because, like, I could moderate a bunch of panels. I'm, like, a experienced journalist. Mm-hmm. So, like, I have I had external validity that allowed my podcast to sort of exist even before it had audience. And, like, I now, whatever, have been grinding it out. Um, and I think to your goal of, like, making better comedians, like, it is really about you know, getting different types of comedians that, you know, every, I think comedians do this especially, but it, but all artists do it, which is you give advice based on your experience. And, and the problem is your advice 
your experience ends up being incredibly specific to you. Like people, you know, certain comedians like, oh, you should be clean because then you could book more gigs or whatever. And then it's like, well, that only works if you're sort of naturally good at being clean. Right. And it actually will be harder for you. And the, the point is, like, the more people you book from a completely different background that have completely different experiences will give different people different things they could latch onto and different paths they can try. Because, like, so many comedians will say, the trick is doing it as much as possible. But that is not how everyone did it. That's not how Jenny Slate made it. Jenny Slate did not make it because she did as much as possible. Jenny Slate was like kind of doing it once a week, but she was like living a life as an artist and like figuring out who she was. Cause that's all she needed to do. Like there's these American comedians who are like, the only way to do it is to grind it out at clubs and do 10 shows a night. It's like, that's not how they do it in Australia. That's not how they do it in the United Kingdom. And like, who's to say that like, and yes, the best American comedians are maybe better than the, than every other comedian but like i don't i wouldn't say that like tier c american club comedian is like better than daniel sloss or better than ronnie chang or better than hannah gatsby or better than any person who comes out of like a system where you're actually doing an hour first and you build a full show mm-hmm. like maybe that's your thing like and that doesn't mean that isn't your thing i think like your ability you have the ability to expose people to different things and and not tell them comedy has to be this one thing and that is the only way in which more people are going to be more satisfied with what they're doing is not feeling the need to have to paint themselves in one box because not everyone's going to be able to do everything but that doesn't mean what you're doing is wrong like don't accept certain value systems just because the comedian you like most does it that just might not be your thing Mm -hmm. like there's nice comedians whose favorite types of comedians are harsh and they just, you know, like Jim Gaffigan's a non-political comedian who likes lefty political comedians, but he knows that's sort of not what he can do. And that's not like true to his art form. Like eventually you sort of have to like give yourself more options and be like, oh, maybe that's my type of thing. And like try things out. And you have the ability to sort of like expose people to those things. So, mm. so you know, in terms of the service of comedians, that's your best thing you can do. It's like try to get people from different scenes. I mean, because it's it's possible the one thing that a comedian needs to unlock everything is one writing technique that they haven't heard before. And people have... The, I, ask, I ask almost every guest, how, what does writing mean to them? Because every comedian says they write jokes, right? Mm-hmm. And like some people mean they, write, mean they write a word down and they write the other word. And some people, like Penn Oswald means he does the dishes and he thinks about a thing for a while. Or Ray Romano has an idea. He talks to his friend on the way to the club. He says he repeats their full conversation except for his friend's part. And then based on what they laugh, then that and then just that's what he does. So Maria Bamford gets coffee with one person and does her act for that person. Maybe that's what you need to do, mm-hmm. person who's listening. So that 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 is like what is like oh oh in terms of like your service of comedians, like that's probably what's going to be best. Also be what's most entertaining. Cause even if you disagree, it's like, Oh, it's interesting that this is an option that's out there. There's so many ways up the mountain. Um, but in terms of popularity, it's like, you know, you just keep on doing it. You hope the people that are guests tweet at you. Um, and then maybe, you know, try to get trade ads with people. Trade ads with people. Okay. Yeah. Like, 
go to another podcast that you assume is as popular as yours and be like, I'll do an ad for your podcast if you do an ad for mine. Oh, interesting. Okay, gotcha. It's called, it's called ad swaps. Ad swaps. All right, I will remember that because that I feel like is the next step of scaling this up to over 200 interviews with a lot of big name comedians. It's like, what do we got to do? So yeah. th- that'll be helpful if advertising could be a thing. That's right. Yeah, I mean, regardless of like making money from it, but like in terms of getting audience, it's just like yeah. literally have, telling pe- having a people who listen to podcasts want to be told on podcasts, other podcasts they listen to because they're already listening to it. Like, like written articles I have not seen do much, but like if you get a bunch of like appearing on other shows is probably also really useful. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's just like getting the word out through the other shows. Gotcha. Perfect. All right. Well, this has exceeded expectations. I can't thank you enough for your time and this just comedy powwow we just had. It's. I hope this was interesting to these people. Oh, now I you feel like you're the guest. Funny. You now now you sound like Seinfeld saying he doesn't think jokes are jokes are boring to other people. Well, not that I not that I think I think it's very interesting, <laughs> but I don't know what people. Expect. Have everyone wants interesting, you know, like yeah, this... as I said, you have, like very famously funny people. And I, though I, I contend that I could be interesting about comedy. I do not, would never suggest I'm as funny as funny people. No, that's and comedians have come on here before. It's like I wasn't really that funny throughout it. But the purpose of this isn't to be funny. There could be organically sure. funny moments, but that's not that's not the purpose of this. And people are I saying, do, I, yeah, go ahead. Uh, I do tell guests. If you think you're being boring, it's okay. I promise you people are finding it interesting. Well, there you go. See, it's the same. Wayne said, great interview. I'm saying, thanks, guys. Great interview. Jody, thanks, guys. Great listen. Like, yeah, people people love this. And And you're welcome. I thank you for spending so much time with me because I feel like uh, it was very long. But I, you know, once I get talking, I feel like I, you know, it's fun. No, I was I was in the moment with you. I was listening. It's great to connect with an interviewer of your level and ability. So even just to get to, even interacting through DM, I'm like, this is awesome. So this was yeah. This I'm was, like, a, I mean, I know what you mean. I'd be like, I feel like a particularly regular person, but I understand that if you just know me as like a thing that seems so produced, right? Because hmm. we're editing me not me sounding more normal. <laughs> yeah. Than, I've been on podcasts where you're like, oh, this is what they're like regularly. Like, oh, they edit out all this. Everyone seems a little bit more human where it's like, if you just hear me finish, like, wow, how did he think of all that stuff on the spot? I was like, well, I had it all. I had people who assumed I didn't write down the questions ahead of time. And I'm like, you must think I'm like the smartest man on earth. Yeah. Yeah. I, I always, I keep, do you keep all of your notes and research? Do you have it documented somewhere? I mean, it's all in Google Docs. It's all in Google Docs. Okay, yeah. I have a notebook of all my show notes that kind of, like, I feel like will be a book someday or something. Um, yeah, everything's in Google Docs. And then, like, obviously, nice. we make we make posts of the transcripts or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I've seen interviews who've gone, who've done it without, with just, like, their brain. I'm like, you, to me, that's impressive. But, like, um, you know, you want to be prepared. I mean, like. Of course. So, um so yeah, if anyone thinks that I, it's easy, I'm like, I mean, I probably not. I feel like everyone's like, this guy puts a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. But it's worth it. Yeah, like you said, with the like with the failure we're talking about. But you have to enjoy the work in order to like really yeah. appreciate those failures as lessons. So yeah, the this 
This is now an official ad swap. Go listen to Good One. See what I did there? See what I did yeah. there? But go listen to Good One. It is it's the it's the like the gold standard when it comes to comedy podcast interviews. If you love this show, you're going to love that one and most likely you already listened to it. They actually are now doing weekly where you're going to start releasing additional beyond dissecting like jokes that are out now, but dissecting comedians that aren't even alive anymore and really getting into that. Cause your affinity for Robin yeah. Harris is, is like yeah, a little I, interesting I, to me. It's like, there's a lot you're about to do with this show. I think, I mean, I could talk about Robin Harris. We have not done any of those episodes, partly because it feels like really morbid to do death related things. So we've been waiting. Oh, okay. uh, that's why, you know, I, I've talked to certain comedians about doing episodes about comedians they like, but yeah, it feels like the vibe isn't right. Like, I feel like death is already too much in the air to be like, let's talk about how Robin Harris died before he got his big break. But you're like, looking to diversify the content, and you're really looking to start yeah. rolling out more and thinking, I guess, yeah. beyond just, like, the normal format. Well, I also think, um, as any indication of this interview, like, I think there's something... I think I am capable of talking about comedy in a way that is listenable and the audience would probably appreciate it and or create a deeper relationship with me. So um, I think it's important to offer them that to sort of like really build the show around like my point of view opposed to just saying like, oh, good one's the show where we do this one specific thing. Um, because like I did that episode with my coworker, Catherine, where we talked about best specials of the year. And I'm like, I think this is really, I think this was really interesting. And, and so I wanted more opportunities with that because I do think um, it makes for a better show, like a more full, a fuller show in terms of full show experience opposed to just like, oh, you have to come to the show for, to listen to the guests you already like. It's like, oh, the show's less guest dependent and more sort of my point of view dependent. Any aspirations of doing video as well? No, okay. not not um, not filming me. I um, would be in my head about it. Um, I would like just be worried about, worried about where my hairline was the entire time. <laughs> um, we talk about doing film things that are in the spirit of good one that use the same vocabulary, but not filming me doing interviews. Perfect. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen of the Hot Breathiverse, let's give a round of applause for the one and only Jesse David Fox. Thank you so much to everyone that tuned in today that asked questions. Go check out Good One. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Is there anything else you want to promote? Nope. Do that. And if you do that, you'll hear about the other stuff I do. Perfect. I mean, follow me on social media at Jesse David Fox. And that's, that'll be enough. All right, Hot Breath Averse. All those will be linked in the show notes of this. And we will see you tomorrow with Ron Funches, everyone. So we shall be back tomorrow at 2 p.m. again. So until then, have a good day. Bye. All right. If this was your first Hot Breath episode, you are now an official member of the Hot Breath Averse. Welcome aboard. Hot brethren and sistren, go forth now. If you did find this episode insightful and helpful, just reach out to Jesse on social media, Twitter and Instagram, and let him know his time on Hot Breath was well spent and you would like to hear us 
together more because I think this is just the beginning of a beautiful relationship, not only between Jesse and I, but between the Hot Breath of Earth and you. Please engage with us, hang out with us, meet comics from around the world in our Facebook group. You get to do live Q&As like the one we did here with Jesse. We also do a daily writing club. Every day we're meeting up together and writing for 10 minutes and comparing and giving each other feedback on jokes. So definitely jump into that. We have comics from all over the world. The Netherlands, India, Ireland, Canada, Georgia, the state of Georgia. Yes, we are very exotic in there and we are all about helping each other get better at comedy together. So the link to the Facebook group is in the show notes. And that is all of your homework. Of course, we're on all social media. You can find us just by simply searching Hot Breath Podcast or Joel Byers, B-Y-A-R-S. If you want to support the show, order my comedy special. We talked about it in this episode. It's available on my website, joelbyerscomedy.com. It's also linked right in the show notes. It says, watch Joel's comedy special. Click on that. It's pay what you want been doing comedy 10 years i decided to invest in myself to inspire others to do the same inspire others by investing in my self-investment and invest in your happiness by getting to watch a hilarious comedy special so thank you for your time and attention and support thank you at the end of all these i thank my wife for making the theme song she also makes a cameo in my special with my dog on the front row but thank you to her And until next Monday, or an additional one, you know, this week I posted an extra episode. Last week, I posted an additional episode about how to design and organize your set list and how to know when to kill your jokes and how to read a room. So I'm experimenting like Jesse is with his podcast about additional content. So I'd love your feedback and insight on what type of content you would like to hear and what you find helpful because this whole show is about helping. So I appreciate you listening all the way through this outro. And I look forward to seeing you in that Facebook group and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Until next Monday, hot brethren and sisterin, right here on Hot Breath. This episode of Hot Breath is sponsored by our Patreon. If any of our content has helped your comedy career, join our Patreon linked in the show notes and get positive comedy karma for life. Probably.